We'll turn with me back to the book of James as we work our way through. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 today. James 4, verses 13 to 17, this last paragraph of this chapter. Almost every day in the mail I receive uh, brochures of one kind or another concerning upcoming seminars. Every conceivable kind of seminar that people think pastors ought to go to. Uh, seminars about uh, honing your ministerial skills, uh, more often time management seminars or uh, seminars having to do with administrative uh, duty or seminars having to do with some uh, aspect of the church life, worship or preaching or Christian education. There is no end to seminars. In fact, I saved a quote from Time Magazine some time ago in my little file of uh, things describing how the seminar craze has captivated businesses in this uh, country. Let me, let me quote, uh, this is from Time some time ago. Companies put up eight to nine hundred dollars a head to enroll in courses like time management and assertiveness training for managers. A company called the First Seminar Service lists 100,000 such seminars annually around the country. By its estimate, corporations send 8 million people a year for this training and think it's worth paying $4 billion. Then this great last sentence, the rustling sound of flip charts in action runs like a breeze through the cornfields from coast to coast. How to plan more effectively, how to control the events which affect your business, how to manage your time. These are vital subjects of importance to business. So important that the business community will spend megabucks and thousands of man days off in order to teach their people these subjects. And what about the subject of God's role in business? Ah, uh, well, that's not covered in any of these seminars. I mean, you wouldn't expect it to be, would you? Well, James, who is intensely practical and pulls no punches, is about to give us a bit of a seminar on God's role in things like business. And it won't cost you $800, and you don't have to take three days away from home. Brief and to the point. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. 
I think there are two exhortations that we need to hear from this passage. And they're really the same one. They're just kind of two sides of the same coin. The first is this. Stop living like an atheist. Stop living like an atheist. Do we have any atheists here? No, I doubt it. I doubt there's one person here uh, on, on hardly any Sunday who would be comfortable with that label, atheist. But we may be one. You see, there are different kinds of atheism. There's, they're the pure atheists, the philosophical atheists. That's what we mostly think of when we use the term. Those are the people who openly proclaim their belief that there is no God. That's why we call them atheists. But then there are also agnostics. They, they normally are not comfortable with the label atheist. They just say we can't know whether there is a God or not. It's a moot point. It's irrelevant. It's just a question that we can't address. You can think about it, but it doesn't mean anything. But do you see, what's the difference? In practice, what's the difference between not being able to know whether there's a God and believing that there's not a God? It comes out to the same life without God. The atheists, the pure atheists, there's the agnostics, but then there are what I would call the practical or practicing atheists. These are people who do not call themselves atheists. In fact, they might loudly proclaim their belief in God. In fact, they might even call themselves Christians. In fact, they might be sitting in church this morning. They might be sitting in this church this morning. But they live as if God doesn't exist. Maybe all the time, maybe all the time except Sunday. Living as if God doesn't exist. That is practicing atheism. And that's what our text is addressing. Now what does it look like? Look at verse uh, 13. Here he describes a little bit. Now listen, you who say, here's what it looks like. Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. We say, well, that's what everybody says. That's what everybody says all the time. Yeah. Alec Moyer describes it, quote, We assure ourselves that time is on our side and our, at our disposal. We make our plans as if personal ability and profit motive were the only issues to take into account. We speak to ourselves as if life were our right, as if our choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that is needed to make a success of things, as if Getting on and making money and doing well were life's sole objective. End quote. Practical atheism. It's uh, simply living. Date books, work schedules, class schedules, 
reports, assignments, suspense dates, social calendar, ball games, family outings, relaxing in front of the TV, cleaning up the mess, living without regard for God. Here God says, stop. Stop living like I don't exist. Stop living like you're an atheist. For you see, in contrast to that whole blur of life that we just all take for granted, James points out a rather sobering reality. Look at verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. In other words, James says, you're not in control here. You can't control tomorrow. You can't even predict tomorrow. We can analyze all the factors and we can study all the trends and we can make calculated projections, but the bottom line is that there is not one single area where we have any certain knowledge about tomorrow. In fact, we can't even control our own lives. There's no guarantee we will even be here to see tomorrow. No matter what steps we take to lengthen our life expectation, at best, our lives are a puff of vapor that's gone. At worst, our lives can be snuffed out in an instant with no warning. We can't control it. That's a stark reality that should bring us up short. You can't just go on assuming that life is yours. No. You don't know that. So how do we respond to that stark reality? Well, there are a few who just drop out, say, okay, then I'm not going to make any plans. I'm not going to set any goals. I'll just enjoy this moment for all it's worth because that's all I have. More likely, we fight against that stark reality. We say, no, I will seize control. I will control it. I will make it happen. <clears throat> and it's that group that James is really addressing here. God says there's an arrogance in this attitude that says I will seize the day quite apart from God's action and whether he exists or not. Look at verse 16. As it is you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. William Barclay in his little commentary explains this word brag. He says the word is alazonia. Alazonia was originally the characteristic of the wandering quack. He offered cures which were not cures and boasted of things which he was not able to do. Alazonia was the characteristic of the man who lays claim to that which he does not possess and who boasts of that which he cannot do. The future is not within the hands of men. And no man can arrogantly claim that he has the power 
to decide it. Another author calls this the height of man's arrogance as he tries to build a world without reference to God. Stop living as if God doesn't exist. Stop boasting about that which you have no control over. Stop assuming that you're in the driver's seat, that tomorrow is yours, that the future is there to be seized. That's living as if there is no God. That's living like a practical atheist. Start thinking about the implications of this, it gets pretty close to home. Just leaving God out, that, that's the arrogant attitude that the Bible condemns here, just leaving God out. We can do that in regard to our business. That's the example that James uses. We make our business plans, we project our income, we take our jobs, we uh, advertise, we, uh, we go and uh, figure ways to make profits, do everything, just run our business without any reference to God. He's not a player. In fact, it's so common we can hardly conceive of running a business any other way, can we? That's how everybody runs business. James says, oh no, no. Stop living as if God doesn't exist in your business. But it's not just about business. This practical atheism shows up at home, too. You know, we can carry on our routine at home. We can interact with our spouse. We can raise our children. We can socialize with our neighbors, mow the grass, wash the car, do all the things we have to do without any mention or reference to God, as if he's not a factor. In fact, if I might just get real pointed here, I have had at least two different people in this community tell me that when they grew up, they certainly were in church every Sunday, and they certainly read the Bible at supper time every day in their home, but apart from those times, God was never mentioned. We never talked about it. No reference to God. See, you can say you believe whatever you want to say, but that's practicing atheism. Living without reference to God. Well, but it's not just about business and about home. One of the greatest places that we find this is in, in, in education. It's the norm in education. I mean, we can't advance somebody's religion in school, so what do we do? Well, we, we educate without mentioning God. We teach math and science and social studies, everything, without any mention of whether God exists or doesn't exist. Well, a kid doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to learn that whatever God there might be certainly doesn't have a bearing, any bearing on anything important like math or science or history or geography or any of those things. That's practical atheism. Let me just be real blunt. Public education is always, always, at every level, atheistic education. If 
you send your kids to public school, if you're in public school, you need to understand what you're up against. To live and to teach truth as if God, as if you can do that with no mention of God, is practical atheism. To be prepared to fight against that. Oh, but it can be also that way in Christian school. Having Christian in your name or having chapel every Tuesday or whatever day does not change that. If you can teach math and history and social studies without any reference to God, that's atheistic education. God's not a player. And that goes on in Christian schools all across the country, too. James says, stop. God says, stop. I'm not only a player, I'm at the center of everything. Oh, but it's not just in business, and it's not just at home, and it's not just in school. This can happen in church. You say, no, you can't have atheism in church. Yes, you can. We can have the best theology, and we can hear the best sermons, and we can buy the very best Sunday school curriculum, and yet still live and work together in a church as if God's not a player. We don't talk about him except in the official times of preaching or teaching. We don't really expect him to do anything here. We don't really ask him to do anything here. We just live our lives as a bunch of people that have some mutual uh, task. We don't embarrass each other by bringing up God all the time. We simply, if we do, we kind of talk in little cliches. We might call that a Christianized practical atheism. Church becomes basically secular, except for the formal times of preaching teaching. I know a man who used to come to this church, who quit coming some time ago, and when I spoke to him, this was one of the complaints he had. He said, when I come to church, and when I've just heard God's Word preached, I don't want to talk about baseball or work. Or the weather. I want to discuss what I just heard, what God just taught us, and what it's going to mean for us. But nobody at the chapel seems to want to talk about that. This morning, I don't know where the shoe fits, whether in regard to business, or home, or school, or church. But if the shoe fits, Take it to heart. We must stop, stop, stop living as if God's not a player, as if he doesn't exist. That's practical atheism. And so what do we do instead? Well, the other side of that coin, the positive side of that coin is this. Practice God's providence. Practice God's Providence. You know what Providence is, right? Capital of Rhode Island, I think. Right? A couple of definitions of Providence, in case that's not a word that you use all the time. But Providence is really what James is talking about here. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the greatest uh, creed of the church written in English, I suspect, has a, a very great and precise but somewhat heavy definition. Let me read it for you because it's a good definition, even though you have to kind of think hard to hear it out. 
Here's the definition of providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. According to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his own wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Providence, God's absolute governance of everything for his own glory. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, which is always warmer and more personable than the Westminster stands, gives us a little bit more of an understandable definition. Let me, let me read that. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade Rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. What a great statement. Oh, and today, this Ascension Sunday, we're reminded that that providential governing of all things is not something far off and mysterious. No, this is the role that has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read of him in Ephesians 1 that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given in this present age and in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. That's the point of verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In other words, practice God's providence. Oh, this does not mean that we add yet another little cliche to our vocabulary, cheerfully saying at every turn, well, if it's the Lord's will. No, this is talking about a different kind of living, a a life of humility that recognizes who we are and who God is and lives consciously, always subject to him. 
couple of quotes, Alec Moyer again, who may take tomorrow for granted, thinking of it as a mark on the rim of time's wheel, coming on inevitably as the circling years proceed. But in the Bible, the years do not circle. They go in a straight line from eternity to eternity. And on that line we receive another day. Neither by natural necessity, nor by mechanical law, nor by right, nor by courtesy of nature, we receive another day only by the covenanted mercies of our God. As someone else said, what James is talking about goes to the depths of a person's thinking about life. He's talking about a God consciousness that controls a person's entire thought. It's the ability to approach any thought, any word, any deed, any decision that, with the awareness that God has the ultimate okay, that he has the ultimate authority, that his will is more important than mine, that we cannot bend his will to ours, that he is the sovereign final authority in everything. This is what that wonderful text that we may have learned as children, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, this is what that's talking about. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord. And do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge Him. Acknowledge Him. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge Him. And He will direct your path. Practice God's providence. Well, this doesn't mean that Christians don't plan, but it does mean that our planning is not frantic nor arrogant. It is done asking God for wisdom as we plan, subjecting ourselves to God's word as we plan, submitting all of our plans to God's authority, accepting changes at his will. And this applies to our business and our family and everything. Practice God's providence. Practicing God's providence means accepting uncontrollable circumstances with grace. It means that interruptions in our life are seen as opportunities, as appointments from God not as threats to our authority and our control of things. Practicing God's providence means that when tragedy strikes, when we absolutely cannot understand why, then instead of shaking our fist in God's face and saying, how can you let this happen to me? We run like little children into his arms, trusting him, not leaning on our own understanding but acknowledging him, bowing our will to his, even in the most terrible circumstances. I was reminded of this last night as I was uh, preparing, typing up these notes. 
And I checked my email and I got an email, an urgent email message asking me to pray for a seminary classmate of mine named David Voss, who's a missionary pastor in France. It seems that his church, his family, and his fellow missionaries were on a picnic on a wonderful day in the French countryside. And after the picnic, they had a little devotional time where they read a passage in Hebrews about the Christian life being like a race that we run to the finish. And so they decided just for fun, as they headed back to the car, let's have a little 100-yard dash race. And so they all lined up and raced. As they crossed the finish line, uh, David uh, fell unconscious with an apparent heart attack. And it does not look good at all. And there's very little evidence of any brain activity. The doctors say he probably will not regain consciousness and probably will not live. And his wife and his three little girls are brokenhearted. His missionary co-workers wonder how they can do the work without him. His church is aghast the loss of their pastor. And so they're writing everyone they know, asking them to pray, to pray. What I want you to hear, because it has to do with what we just talked about, practicing God's providence, I want you to hear how they finished this request for prayer. I'll read you the last paragraph. We believe we are to pray for God to mightily raise up David and restore him fully to his family and to this team and to this church. And that we are to pray this way until God either says yes or no. To which we will bow our knees. That's practicing God's providence. I will beat upon the gates of heaven asking God. And if he says no, I will bow my knee to him. In all of thy ways, acknowledge. Folks, this is not optional. If you go to one of those seminars on time management, you can take it or leave it. You paid your money, you listened to the, their spiel, you can walk out the door and dump the notebook in the garbage and go on about your business. Not so here. Knowing God's will brings the obligation to practice it. That's what the last verse of our text says. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And what's the good that we ought to do? What is it that we're called to here? What's our challenge this morning? Two things. Stop living like an atheist without regard for God. And instead, practice God's providence. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word. And uh, we admit that every one of us is probably guilty of doing just what James describes here, of just making our plans and going about our business and acting as if the future is ours to command, as if we know things we don't know, as if we control things we don't control.
as if you're not even a player, Lord, in our life. Oh, Lord, forgive us where we have been so arrogant, where we've dared to convince ourselves and to act toward others as if we hold all the reins. Lord, we know that sometimes when we've done that and then when your plans changed our plans, we've been angry and we felt betrayed and we've questioned you because you didn't fit into our plans. Well, Lord, may we do just the opposite. May we understand the, the greatness and the extent of your absolute providential governance of everything. And though we don't understand it, Lord, may we give up leaning on our own understanding and entrust ourselves and our days to you and acknowledge you in everything and, and live in light of this wonderful truth of your providential care. Help us, Lord, to do so. And as we pray, Father, I do pray for David Voss's family and his church and his fellow missionaries. And I pray, Lord, that if it would please you to uphold his life, that you would. And if not, I thank you that even from halfway around the world, they speak to us of um, their confidence in you. So be with them this morning, too, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.